0: Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you.
1: Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Research Review on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Our plan is to continue these on a monthly basis, reviewing two to three articles with a thematic element to the articles. This month, concussions will be our topic. We have another three articles and one of the leaders in pediatric sports concussion research joining us today to help us review the articles and give us some further insight as she was a lead author and contributing author to two of the articles we will review. Today, my guest reviewer is Dr. Christina Master. Dr. Master is a professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine with over two decades of experience in clinical pediatrics. She is board certified in pediatrics and brain injury medicine as well as sports medicine. She treats over 800 youth with concussion annually in her outpatient practice. She is the co-founding director of Minds Matter, a concussion program for children at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that provides clinical care and conducts research in youth concussion. Her greatest area of research emphasis has been in furthering understanding of visual deficits following concussion as a target for intervention and identifying objective biomarkers. She is certainly considered one of the leaders in pediatric concussion research, and she also co-hosts a podcast for the American College of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast, Tina.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Mark. I'm really excited to be here today.
1: Yeah, I think this is going to be a good discussion. I'm looking forward to this. You know that uh, obviously concussions are a topic that both you and I have a lot of passion about. I'm going to give us our lineup today our our three articles today are as follows first we'll be reviewing an article from karen barlow on efficacy of melatonin in children with post-concussive symptoms a randomized clinical trial that was published in april of 2020 in pediatrics second we will discuss an article from daniel corwin about vestibular and ocular motor findings in neurologically normal non-concussed children that was published in brain injury in march of 2018 And finally, we'll discuss Dr. Master's article recently published a month or so ago in Journal of Pediatrics on characteristics of concussion in elementary school age children implications for clinical management. Let's dive right in. We'll start with the article from Barlow about melatonin. This is actually something I've really been looking forward to this article. When I saw the protocol published several years ago, I'd given a talk on pharmacologic therapies and concussion at an AMSSM annual meeting and found the protocol on a lit search that I did at the time and then followed up with that with a publication in Sports Health on the same topic. And as you can imagine, publishing that there was not a lot of good research, if any, on medication use and pharmacologic therapy in concussions. When I saw this, I was really interested immediately that I would have some recommendations for my patients better, more evidence-based, because I do use melatonin quite a bit for sleep issues with their concussion. You know, I've, I don't know about you, Tina, but I've gone through several phases in concussion management. I, I did the rest approach that we used to talk about a lot, where we'd shut everybody down. Then I went through a phase where I call my medication phase, where I did start to use a lot of different medications to try and treat the symptoms that people were having And I really don't use much medication anymore. And I'm doing more, obviously, of the active rehabilitation that people are doing. I've kind of gone away from a lot of medications. But do you use much for medicines or even just melatonin for your concussed kids?
0: I think in general, with regard to medications, we don't use medications. In fact, um, we'll even get in our program, as you can imagine, a number of second opinion kids who have persistent symptoms, and they'll come in on a lot of medications. And we talk a little bit about how our first approach is often coming off those medications because of various side effects or just not really seeming to help. So we don't really use medications in our practice. Melatonin is one of the things that we will consider using, uh, however, and so I think from that standpoint, um, I agree with you 100% that this article um, is really interesting and helpful and you know may also raise as many questions as it answers.
1: Yeah, I I agree. We'll talk a little bit starting off with the hypothesis of this study was that melatonin would result in a greater decrease in persistent post-concussive symptoms. So this is was the one thing about this article as I started reading through him, like, oh, I don't know if this is going to answer the question that I really want because this is looking at the the prolonged concussed kid when they compared it to a placebo. So at least we have that part of this part. It was a very good and one of the few actually out there. And I, I think honestly, the only one that I know of, that's a randomized double blind trial looking yeah, at some so. sort of pharmacologic therapy. And we know melatonin, it's been touted to have antioxidant anti-inflammatory properties, and it's been shown in an animal TBI study to improve behavioral and pathologic outcomes. This was a single center, randomized, double blind controlled trial it was conducted at Alberta Children's Hospital in Canada. So it would make it a level one, level two study. Depends on how you look at the ranking of the evidence as far as whether we consider systematic reviews as the level one of randomized controlled trials or put it in level two. But either way, a high level study. They identified participants coming in through the ER, and then they enrolled them by phone at two to four weeks afterwards. I'm assuming the post visit in the ER was the the way that they did this. It was a little bit confusing and kind of looking it up. I'm assuming that all this was done. They looked at them in the ER, they captured them in the ER, and then they did the follow up to see if they were still having symptoms. It didn't really kind of specifically say that, but it looked like that the enrollment was two to four weeks afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And then they enrolled them in person two weeks after that. So I'm assuming this was an in-office evaluation at that time. The age group here is 8 through 18. They had numerous exclusion criteria. I'm not going to go through all of them, but most relevant, they had not had a concussion within the last three months. They had not had persistent symptoms from a previous concussion or any history of severe TBI. But again, there were some other items that would exclude patients as typical expected for a lot of these types of studies. They were only enrolled if they had a symptom score more than 10 points higher than their pre-injury score for the post-concussive symptom inventory. So I'm assuming when they did some of their analysis here, their pre-injury score, I think that was probably done during the phone call. But again, it wasn't specifically said when exactly they did that. And that obviously can put some things there as far as a recall bias, as far as what they actually felt before. And there have been studies out there that have shown that people have a harder time when they're actively dealing with their concussion of truly assessing what their pre-injury status was yeah they did randomization through a random block design i had to look this up because i wasn't exactly sure how this does i by no means am the expert in research and randomization and they did block sizes of three six and nine and they had three parallel treatment groups including a placebo three milligrams of melatonin 10 milligrams of melatonin and then they had an independent pharmacist they created sequentially numbered identical treatment packages the placebo and melatonin were identical in appearance and flavor And all investigators, outcome assessors, parents and children were blinded to the treatment group. So great part there. Participants took the melatonin or placebo one hour prior to sleep at night for 28 days, and they continued it even if they had symptom resolution. So they finished it for the full four weeks, and they did not have any restrictions on other medications, which obviously could have some issues as far as how you can apply some of this. Is is it really only melatonin? And they didn't talk about specifically what percentage of people were using medicines otherwise than melatonin. They were advised to avoid analgesic use or overuse, I should say, refrain from contact sports, but they were encouraged to perform light exercise and gradually return to school, all the types of things that we usually recommend. I would hope that most of these kids after a month were still not restricted from school. Um, That could obviously cause all sorts of issues, as you and I both know. And then the primary outcome measure was a change in the post-concussive symptom inventory. They had the youth version, although parents also filled out a parent version. This is a 26-item questionnaire, so it's a little bit more than a lot of the ones that many of us use. I I think most of us use a 22-item or things like that. It's a little bit higher. Secondary outcomes were behavioral, cognitive, and sleep problems from functional and functional impairments. PCSI score for parents was completed. They did a child health questionnaire. There was a parent Form 50, a child Form 87, both to assess quality of life. And then they did neurocognitive testing with CNS vital signs. They also looked at sleep with a wristwatch worn accelerometer. The brand that they use was ActiWatch. I had to look this up. It it looks like it is primarily just a research-based sleep monitor. They had it on their dominant wrist and they did it for five or seven days before and then after treatment. So I'm assuming that when they enrolled these patients, they started them off to look at their sleep and then they started them on treatment. At least that's the kind of interpretation I got from using that before and after treatment. They actually also did something interesting here. They looked at a urinary metabolite of melatonin before, in the middle, and at the end of treatment. And that would allow to kind of get an idea of where these patients actually taking it, because we would expect the ones that were on the melatonin group to actually have elevated metabolite in their urine. They had 99 participants. The mean age was 13.8, 58% girls. They were assigned randomly to groups of 33 each. And then 92 of the 99 completed the trial by protocol. So pretty good overall. And 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 again, decent, as you would hopefully expect with only a month-long trial, although they did have follow-ups at three and six months, too, looking at things. 65% of the concussions were sports-related. 95% of all concussions were witness events. They started the treatment at a mean of 38 days, so we're talking five and a half weeks after injury. So we have to remember that when we're talking about this patient population and applicability of this study overall. Their symptom score was 36 at the start of treatment as a mean. The primary outcome of the change of symptom score was assessed, and they looked at a decrease in score in all groups over time without statistical significance. So they did not see a difference between the groups. The overall mean decrease was 21 points after four weeks of treatment. And parents also reported a mean decrease in symptom score as well. So the parents are also corroborating with that as saying that there were improved. When they looked at Kaplan-Meier survival curves during treatment and at six-month follow-up, there were no differences seen between the three treatment groups, the placebo three milligrams and 10 milligrams of melatonin. There were no significant differences in the hazard ratios of symptoms returning to baseline between any of the groups. They also saw no differences noted between the groups for secondary outcomes of sleep. Really, the only difference they found is when they were looking at cognitive executive function and internalizing problems, there were no differences there. But when they looked at externalizing problems, so things such as hyperactivity, conduct, and aggression, They noted in the 3-melatonin group that was higher with externalization problems than versus placebo, but not in the 10-milligram group. Both youth and parents reported improved quality of life at the end of treatment, and they did look at that assessment of the melatonin metabolites in the urine, and it did show that there were increases as expected only in the melatonin treatment group, not in the placebo group. When we looked at kind of compliance, 42 participants missed at least one dose, and five participants missed five doses or more. So really just to kind of summarize this article, there wasn't really a difference noted in any of the outcome measures that they were looking at, including the outcomes and symptom score changes or the major secondary outcomes that were assessed. They talk about various limitations in the study, potentially being underpowered. They had wide confidence intervals on their primary outcome measures indicating sample size may also have been too small. They also described the good old days' bias and we kind of I mentioned that earlier as far as the reporting of pre-injury scores. And they did not use a specific pediatric sleep questionnaire to characterize any sleep disturbances. I mean, overall, I thought this was a decent study. I honestly, like I mentioned, I wasn't personally having high hopes for it once I realized it was looking at those with prolonged symptoms rather yeah. than the acute phase. And you know, I, I'm assuming as you, if I'm using melatonin, I'm using it for the purpose, not necessarily overall concussion improvement. I'm looking at it for a specific improvement for one parameter that they may be dealing troubles with and that's their sleep disturbances. Yeah. Your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head with that. I think that as you look at concussions and what we're learning about concussions, it really does seem that kids do fall into different sub-phenotypes somewhat, you know, and I think the whole idea of having kids that have more prominent sleep versus cognitive versus emotional versus vestibular or visual oculomotor symptoms really helps point the clinician in a direction that you would go in terms of trying to actively manage them. And so I tend to agree with you that um, it was interesting, this study, but it would be interesting to see in the future if they did something where they examined kids who had more of a sleep component to their issues also acutely and then see if that had an effect, because you almost wonder if the design of this study almost was set up to not really find a difference, because you had such a broad population of kids with lots of different symptoms, not necessarily just sleep, when theoretically, treatment that you're implementing is really directed at sleep.
1: Absolutely. And I think they did break out at some point in their study, they talked about the, the overall symptom part Based on, you know, if you break it out, a lot of people break it out into physical symptoms, the cognitive symptoms, emotional symptoms and fatigue symptoms. Right. The fatigue symptoms for these patients were very, very small. I mean, it was, uh, I think, two, two to four was their symptom scores in that category for the sleep difficulties. In the big picture of things, it doesn't look like these kids were really having much trouble with sleep overall. Right. At this point, at least.
0: Yes, and so I think and, it's going to be hard to find a change that would be statistically significant, even in a really well-designed study, um, if they don't start out with lots of sleep symptoms.
1: Things I would have liked to see different. I, I mean, ideally, I would love to see what this is in if we take it in the acute setting and we use melatonin in those kids early on, especially if they have had identified sleep issues. We really did. It didn't talk about their report overall on their sleep. I, I think it's. You know, it's helpful when we talk about just using a symptom score. Do they feel overall that there was a change in their quality of sleep when they were doing this? I, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical of a lot of the sleep watch devices. I mean, we know that you know for a lot of the handheld uh, things, or I'm sorry, not the handheld, but the the wearables. Um, you know, your your Fitbits, your Apple Watches, those types of things. There there are some issues with those. They're not ideal and not perfect. Interestingly, they, there was a trend for a shorter sleep latency with higher doses of melatonin. They went from the ones that were on placebo at 20. 20- minutes down to 18.38 minutes in the three milligram group, and then 16.37 minutes in the 10 milligram group, but it was not found to be statistically significant in this. The total sleep actually was lowest in the three milligram melatonin group. These kids were only getting seven and a half hours of sleep and longest in the 10 milligram group, they were getting almost eight hours. But still, if we look at sleep overall in this age group, that's still what we most of us would consider a little bit too, too little. Yeah which again we know how sleep can have a huge kind of over, overwhelming effect on symptoms that you may experience after your concussion yeah. and if you're not getting adequate sleep it can affect your cognition can make you have headaches all those types of things as as you know you know very well as well
0: yeah no i think that those are all really great points and i think it is i, I think it's a challenging study to do i, I think that the acta watch is certainly probably the best of the options out there in terms of Obtaining research-level sleep data, or at least at least in the ballpark of comparability to a sleep study, so definitely better than your off-the-shelf Fitbit or Apple Watch. And I think that that latency finding is um, interesting in that it demonstrates that probably the melatonin is having an effect on the sleep. And the question is: Is the sleep the problem with these kids with concussion, and is it enough of a problem that it's affecting their other concussion symptoms? You know, the further you get from, you know, measuring your outcome directly to more secondary outcomes, which is kind of what they did here by measuring the overall symptoms as opposed to sleep issues per se. I think the more your effect might get washed out a little bit. You know, I think it's, it's interesting and it does set up a lot of questions for future studies. Sleep is definitely an issue that I think still warrants a lot of, you know, attention, both clinically and from a research standpoint. And this is just building more of the, case for how we think about it.
1: Absolutely agree. And my challenge always in in thinking about doing research on concussions is, is whatever we do as far as an intervention or a treatment trial, I think it's going to be very challenging to get good data out of it without large, large numbers just because, you know, we know that most of these kids are going to have a natural improvement as time goes on. And so are we really speeding it up a lot? Yes. I mean, are, are we really, is it just the natural course of that? And if you're not getting large enough numbers to really get a good effect there, I mean, that could just be, you just happen to select a group that in that smaller group that you did the treatment intervention on, you just may have got that group well. that gets better a little quicker.
0: Yep. I think you're a hundred percent correct. I think that really one of the directions that concussion, you know, recognizes, the field recognizes needs to go is this idea of also not just getting large sample sizes, but sample sizes of, you know, kids with concussions who are similar versus kids with concussions who are different. The idea of phenotypes or subphenotypes is going to be important. And I think that's also the reason why biomarkers, whether they're body fluid biomarkers like blood or saliva, or physiological markers like eye tracking or balance, you're gonna have differences between these kids. And if they're different enough, they may not respond to the treatment that you're actually targeting. And so trying to compare apples to apples as opposed to apples to oranges is gonna be an important thing moving forward as we design these trials. And I think we can learn a lot from the trials that were done in adults in mild and moderate TBI, where again, large studies, large scale studies where they spent a lot of money, enrolled a lot of people, and really didn't find any differences. And I'm thinking particularly about the progesterone studies. And you wonder a little bit if there were some way of trying to predict who might respond to that treatment based on their phenotype, if you might have actually seen a, you know, a difference. And so obviously, you know, we're a long ways from that in concussion, but looking for those biomarkers both to help us identify these kids and distinguish them early, even though this distinctions are subtle, may make a big difference in terms of a treatment trial and then the ultimate outcomes, especially if you can use that biomarker as an outcome.
1: Yeah. And you know when we get further along in these patients too, especially in a study like this, where we're talking about the persistent post-concussive symptoms is, are are we still dealing with the actual active brain injury anymore? Or are we dealing with a different animal at that point too? And that always obviously makes it a little bit more challenging figuring out what exactly are we studying there now? Is it truly the concussion anymore? Or is it some other combination of factors contributing to their prolonged symptoms? Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue discussing concussions in our research review. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at PediatricSportsMedicinePodcast.com.
0: What is the Podcaster Matrix? The Podcaster Matrix is your source for podcast media hosting. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at podcastermatrix.com.
1: Welcome back to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today we have Dr. Christina Master from CHOP here to go through some recent research on pediatric concussions. We're going to move on now to the Corwin article that Dr. Master was a part of, looking at how often vestibular and ocular motor findings were present in neurologically normal non-concussed kids. So an important study, as we need to know when we're doing some of these tests and looking at some objective measures, how often is this a problem actually in the general population? And how much can we apply what we think are abnormal findings in a patient after a concussion as far as do we need to do intervention? I'm going to briefly summarize things here. This is a cross-sectional study of 6- to 18-year-old kids who presented to the ER with non-neurologic complaints, and the objective overall is to determine the proportion of non-concussed neurologically normal children with failures on either a vestibular and ocular motor examination performed in an acute setting. The secondary objectives here included determining the proportion of failed examinations across both sex and age groups. And also determining the youngest age at which exam can be reasonably completed. So that's I think a, a great part of this study here. There were 295 subjects that were enrolled in the emergency department and evaluated by a single pediatric emergency medicine physician. And then 10% of the subjects had the exam repeated after 20 minutes by a second clinician to assess inter-rater reliability. The tests were those that many of you who are familiar with the VOMs include, but also some others. Tina, since you're someone who a lot of us in the concussion world turn to when discussing the visual issues in concussion, I'd like you to walk us through each of these tests as to how they're performed. It's going to be a good test for you describing how we'll be able to visualize things that are a visual test, although we can certainly put some links to videos in the show notes for people, too.
0: We can provide some links that you guys can look at if I do a terrible job doing it just with a description on the podcast. Well,
1: We'll we'll do it from the visual and the audio learners. You can have two options for you. There you go.
0: There you go. You're, You're covering all the bases.
1: That's right. Let's start with dysmetria.
0: Yeah, so dysmetria, again, is something that every medical student will remember and know and love from neurology. And the way that our practice does it is essentially pretty simple and straightforward, using the examiner's finger. And we move horizontally. For the purposes of the study, we just standardized it so that it was back and forth, 10 repetitions, and then asked the subject to essentially take their dominant hand, pointer finger, and try and touch the finger of the examiner as it's moving. From that standpoint, the main things that we would be looking for are past pointing, slowness, and reacting to where the examiner's finger is moving, or having some kind of tremor when reaching the target. That's how we'll generally try and perform dysmetria with our patients, and then how we assess it or score it in terms of whether we think it's normal or abnormal.
1: I don't know about you. I I, I always like to talk about, well, I don't like to talk about the case because of what turned out, but I had a kid that I saw that was a, he was a 10-year-old kid post-concussive and he had gotten his concussion in hockey and he had been returned to play, but the parents noted that he was having lots of troubles with keeping his balance when he got back on the ice. And I well, I saw him in the office. He was referred to me about three months after his original concussion. And when I saw him, we did finger to nose. And as we were doing finger to nose, I mean, he could not hit his nose or my finger to save yeah. his life. I mean, yeah. he was all over the, the place. And then he had this very wide, when I had him do tandem gait, he had this very wide stand or kind of like he swung his right leg out way out to the side. I mean, it was very, very abnormal exam, yeah. not something you would expect three months after concussion. And as you would expect, that should bring a bunch of red flags to an examiner there and and certainly he had a brain tumor that's yes, the reason why he was still having issues so Absolutely. we have to make sure we're thinking outside the box and not just kind of pigeonholing ourselves with concussion with these evaluations for sure
0: I think that's a great point because I think that because of the huge awareness about concussion and the fact that kids play sports you know uh, all the time and they get injuries all the time it's just like in pediatrics you know and sports uh, that's not concussion or general pediatrics where a kid has an injury and everyone attributes to the injury And it's actually not injury related at all. It's just a coincidence because kids are doing so many activities or similarly, if kids, you know, have a cold and you think, well, it's all related to having that virus. And maybe it's not. It's just, you know, kids get a lot of viruses and they get a lot of injuries and they may actually get some concussions, but it may not always be related. And so I think you're 100% correct that these assessments that we do are not specific to concussion in the right context, you know, acutely right after an injury with new onset after the injury, then that would make sense. But again, I think that that's definitely something you always have to have in the back of your mind. And really one of the reasons why we did this study, which was to try and understand how many kids would be considered normal, you know, on the assessment as it's evolved in concussion at this age range. Because as you know, you know, in pediatric sports medicine and concussion, we have the additional factor of, you know, changing ongoing neurodevelopment. They are supposed to be getting better with their balance and their eye tracking and you know uh, their neurologic function. And so how do you take that into account when you're assessing a kid and you don't have a pre-injury assessment to compare to? And so I think that's a really excellent point. And that makes pediatric sports medicine challenging, but also a really, really great job, just like you described, because you always have to be on your toes and thinking about those alternative diagnoses. 100%.
1: We've talked about Dysmetria. Let's move on to the Nystagmus and Smooth Pursuits.
0: Yes. And so, then with the Nystagmus and Smooth Pursuits, what we do with our practice is have the examiner move their finger horizontally. We also standardize that to five repetitions back and forth. And then we basically observe how their eyes follow that moving target. Nystagmus is felt to be normal if you have it at the end range, you know, towards the extreme left or right for a couple of beats. And even when you come to the middle, You may have a couple of beats of nystagmus, but what we're looking for is, is there any kind of sustained nystagmus more than one or two beats when you come particularly to the midline? That's how we'll assess smooth pursuits. And then we also ask if they have symptoms with this, if it provokes headache, dizziness, fogginess, those kinds of things. And then fast saccades? And so then fast saccades are essentially what we use will be the examiner's fingers positioned horizontally and vertically, so we'll do both directions for saccades, usually about shoulder-width distance horizontally, and then vertically, approximately from the top of the head to about the bottom of the neck or the top of the chest, and then standing a few feet away from them, ask them to look as rapidly as they can, uh, left, right, left, right, and then also then alternating looking vertically, up, down, up, down. We consider one complete Rotation back and forth to be one repetition, right to left and then back. Same with up and down and then back. And then we are asking them if they have any symptoms, headache, dizziness, provoked. Um, We also became interested in looking to see if they had any physical exam findings that were provoked. The common ones that we'll see are eyes watering or tearing or turning red or slowing down noticeably during the performance of this task. And so those are the kinds of things that we're looking for with the FASCADs.
1: Talk to me about that a little bit more, because that was something I was interested in as I was reading through the protocol and kind of what criteria was used at, the redness and watering the eyes. Because I, I honestly have not used, I've always used symptom provocation for those tests. And then I saw that as a criteria. And was that was that a criteria that led to failure then if they developed redness or watering their eyes?
0: Yeah. So it really kind of emerged from our clinical practice and what we observed. And so our group has always really tried to do research that tried to answer questions that we had and developed when we would see our patients and arose in the care of our patients. And so I think a number of us had noticed that when kids were performing these tasks, sometimes they had tearing or watering or redness. And so we thought we would just try and capture it. We didn't actually use that necessarily as a failure because obviously the way that, you know, VOMS is described by the Pittsburgh group is symptom provocation and the way that we've adapted it in our visual and vestibular exam that we have adapted into our own practice, some additional elements. We use symptoms as the main reason for failure, but we wanted to capture whether they had redness or watering as part of that as well, just because we observed in our exam of lots and lots of kids that some kids did develop that. And it did seem to be anecdotally you know, related to fatigue when performing the task. We just added that in just to try and capture more information and data and study that. That was the thinking yeah. behind that. Helpful. How
1: about gaze stability testing?
0: Yeah, so gaze stability testing is essentially a means of trying to assess your angular vestibular ocular reflex. We have the examiner use their finger, their thumb actually, and we hold it horizontally for them to do it up and down. We have them focus on a horizontally oriented thumb and ask them to nod up and down. Again, up and down is one repetition, and we count that number of repetitions that they're able to perform. When we have them do horizontal gaze stability, we hold the thumb vertically and then have them focus on the thumb and shake their head side to side as if they're saying no, and then count those repetitions as well. And then, again, assess if they have symptoms that are provoked as a result of doing the task above and beyond what they had when they first started doing the task
1: then near-point convergence testing?
0: And so near-point convergence testing, for this study in the ER, they used an estimate. In our sports medicine practice, we use a convergence ruler because it is a little bit more accurate and precise, and it has been demonstrated to be you know, reproducible and reliable from a research standpoint. Because it's hard to get the ER doctors to use an instrument that's not typical, tool that they would use in the emergency room, we had them do an estimate, which is also what we actually have our pediatricians do in their general pediatric practices, is again, primarily just to have them think about assessing the near point of convergence and then making an estimate. What they did was essentially bring a pencil with small lettering on it towards their nose and estimate how far it was from the nose before it became double and split in two. So essentially losing your convergence of your binocular vision.
1: And finally, tandem gate and balance testing.
0: The tandem gate and balance testing is actually a neat variation on what a lot of folks have done out there that was really developed by Mac Brady, my partner in crime here at CHOP in sports medicine and in concussion research. And he found it very, very clinically useful and the rest of our group has adopted it because it has been so useful. And Dan, Dr. Corwin, has actually done another study that was just published this year looking at its utility comparing this tandem gate, which we call complex tandem gate, to the best and to an objective force plate. And it seems like this tandem gate has a lot of clinical utility and is as good as doing the complete best and doing a force plate measure, which ostensibly is an objective measure of balance. And and this nice little clinical exam actually does as well and provides a little bit more discrimination also. So we really love this test. It's actually a tandem gate where we have them walk forwards with their eyes open and we do five steps to try and quantify it. And then they do forward eyes closed another five steps. And then they do the same thing, eyes open backwards for five steps, then eyes open closed for five steps. That tandem gate is essentially how we standardized our assessment. And that has been really useful and helpful to us in terms of you know how we score it, essentially, if they have any truncal sway or bring their arms up from their sides, kind of like they're on a tightrope, then we would consider those to be failures. So stepping off that line, um, having trunkal sway, or bring your arms up from your side.
1: Great. I can actually picture all of those things. Now, granted, I have obviously some experience in doing all those too, so it's easy for me as you're talking through them to see what I'm doing in my office. But hopefully for people that may not use those in the office, that gives you at least a good visual mentally. Yeah, good, great. Mentally. And then obviously, we'll, we'll we'll make sure to have some links in the show notes for uh, some videos for each of those assessments so you can get a better idea and kind of look at them more. When looking at outcomes, patients were stratified into four age groups, 6 to 8, 9 to 11, 12 to 14, and 15 to 18. The study found that 24% of all the subjects evaluated failed at least one of the nine exam elements. The worst failure rate was for saccades, which was 19% of all subjects. I I need a little clarification here, Tina, because when I was going through the article, it confused me a little bit. And I I think I understand it, but I just want to make sure. It was described that 87% of those with failed horizontal saccade testing and 72% of those with failed vertical saccade testing only reported symptoms after 15 reps. So I'm interpreting that it means it took 15 reps or more to provoke symptoms in those individuals. Is that correct?
0: Yes. And so I think that is a little confusing for folks and we could have probably done a little bit better job describing it. I think, again, based on our group's clinical practice, what we found was that when we use the 10 repetitions as the VOMS does, we were getting a real ceiling effect where, again, kids would have concussions and be able to do 10 repetitions and be fine. And You know, the concept that we have really kind of subscribed to in our practice is that obviously concussion is a form of mild traumatic brain injury and the deficits can often be very mild and that if you don't have a challenging enough task, we may be missing some physical exam findings. The examples that we would give are kind of exactly like you described in your anecdote. You know, so if we have a hockey player or gymnast and they have fantastic balance, that's probably better than your average kids' balance, if they have normal balance, but they still have other signs and symptoms of concussion, are we going to say that they don't have a concussion just because all we assessed was balance and in a task that wasn't very challenging? And so in the same way, we felt like we wanted to make the saccades and the gaze stability task a little bit harder because we found a lot of our kids were doing fine with 10 repetitions and had no symptoms provoked. And yet, clearly, by all other assessments in terms of symptoms or balance or cognitive seemed to be having concussion-related symptoms and issues. And what we found was that if we went to a higher number of repetitions, 20 or 30, that actually that was a little bit more discriminatory and was able to identify kids who had milder deficits. What we use in our practice as normal is 30. And again, that was based really more anecdotally on our practice as opposed to anything that's published out there because there's actually really nothing out there in terms of what is normal. And that's why We felt this study was really helpful to do because we were kind of working backwards, you know, from the concussions perspective, looking at the number of saccades, and then now trying to see in normal non-concussed kids the range of normal or not normal based on our quote unquote definition of failure. And so that's sort of how we arrived at that and kind of backed into that.
1: And from the study, what Tina's talking about specifically there, they found that 97% of those who failed the saccade test report, either of the saccade test reported symptoms after 10 reps. So if you're going by the 10 reps alone, that clearly does not meet that. So if the converse of that, that means only 3% of those actually had failed the test with less than 10 reps. Overall, 13% of subjects failed on one exam element. 5% of the subjects overall failed on two elements. Females had more failures than males, 29% versus 19%. Interestingly, of those who could complete the full exam, the 6- to 8-year-old group overall had the lowest percentage of failures at 15% compared to 32% each in the 9- to 11 group and 12- to 14 group, and 26% of failure rate in the 15- to 18-year-old age group. However, 48% of 6-year-olds and 33% of 7-year-olds could complete the exam, so we have a large number that were not able to but those that could seem more accurate. Do you have any thoughts on that one, Tina, as far as why those ones that could complete it actually were more accurate than the older ones who couldn't?
0: No, I think we were all scratching our heads a little bit with that one. And I think it's uh, great that you point that out. We think that it really is related to this whole idea of where these kids are on their developmental curves for eye movements. We don't have such a thing as developmental curves for eye movements, but if we did, I think we would see some real you know, distinctions and separation between the populations and the eye movements are also probably pretty tightly linked to vestibular development as well in terms of, you know, how much motion kids can tolerate at different ages. We do know that these skills do develop during childhood and that there are different levels of that. So for instance, what we would describe is, you know, we don't, we all know, you know, kids who have issues with motion sickness where basically, you know, they go on a short car ride and after they're done, they kind of have to get out and throw up, and so they're probably on the lower percentile of vestibular and oculomotor and visual function, whereas we have those kids who love riding all those roller coasters at Great Adventure and could do that forever and ever and not feel sick and at all with any motion issues and could potentially grow up to become fighter pilots and sustain you know high Gs and not have it affect them too much. And so what we think we see is similar in the terms of oculomotor and visual function where saccades are developing and some kids who have really excellent saccadic function early on probably are really great readers and enjoy reading and read early and don't have difficulty with that Um, whereas kids who maybe develop a little bit later may not be and so i think that the kids who are able to complete this set of tasks probably do have higher visual and vestibular function then from that standpoint they may compare more positively to the general population where if you're older probably more of you can do this task just because developmentally you're at the stage where more of you are going to be able to do it but it's going to have not just the high functioning visual and vestibular kids but also some of the average visual and vestibular kids and we think maybe that's the reason why there's that difference because otherwise it kind of doesn't make sense but i think the kids who can't do it you know at that age six to eight years of age if we were able to somehow capture them into that cohort then might make those kids look not as good as the older kids just because now you're getting in the kids who are the average or below average with their vestibular and visual function. So that's sort of how we try to account for that. But again, obviously there's still a lot we have to learn about the system.
1: Definitely. You described one of the biggest disappointments of my adult life is that <laughs> I was one of those teens who love to ride roller coasters and can ride them, you know, six, seven, eight times in a row. And as my mid to late 40s have happened, that is no longer the case. And unfortunately, I cannot ride with my children as much as I could. Yeah. I still will will muscle through it. But boy, it's more of a challenge now. It's not as exciting you. or exhilarating anymore. God
0: bless you. And you're exactly you're describing the other end of that curve, right? And so basically yep. if you develop visual vestibular function during childhood, it peaks at some point, probably and I guess I would say early, or at least younger adulthood, than when you and I are, and and then it starts to, you know, come down, and so then you get more and more motion sensitive, you know, as time goes on. So yes, that is a bummer. And then I'm sorry that you didn't end up becoming a fighter pilot, but we're glad that you are a pediatric sportsman (laughs)
1: instead. Well, as one of my other pursuits, I actually did go down the route of uh, trying to get my pilot's license when I was in medical school.
0: (laughs) That's uh, important, yeah. If you're going to, you know, fly. You know, instruments only. You ha- you have to have oh yeah the vestibular function for sure. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah. But uh, interesting. When I got married, that the the continuing on the piloting uh, got nixed. Yeah. So that that uh, ended that very quickly. Yep.
0: Yep. Exactly.
1: Interrelator reliability was good, ranging from eighty four to up to one hundred percent, depending on the test. Overall, can you just kind of discuss some of the conclusions for this study? How you may apply this data to your practice, particularly actually the usefulness of not under the age of ten which was one of the recommendations from the paper in the discussion.
0: Yeah. So I think that, again, we were trying to be real careful with how we word it. I think that you want to be careful using this exam under 10. It doesn't mean you can't, and we certainly do. So we try and do it on every kid that walks in our door, and we sometimes see you know, preschoolers, actually, you know, who've fallen, and the parents are worried they have a concussion, and so the pediatricians will refer them. And so we try to do it all age ranges, but we do have in the back of our minds this caveat that under 10, we want to be less beholden and less, hang a little bit less a hard and fast outcome of this exam because there is going to be a wide variation of developmental ability under 10. But it doesn't mean we don't use it because as you can see in our next study that we're going to talk about, we do use it in kids that are under 10 and we do find that it is helpful in the setting of concussion. I think that um, the other important thing to realize is that even in older kids, there are going to be some kids who have issues with some visual and oculomotor tasks and vestibular tasks, even without a concussion. So, then getting a history from the family and the athlete or the child before injury is helpful too. So, we have taken to asking. All of our kids, you know, if they had a history of motion sickness prior to the concussion, was it made worse by the concussion? Or do they not have it at all before the concussion? Now they have it and it's new. So those are the kinds of things where what we're trying to really highlight and encourage people to think about is that this has to be taken in context. And in pediatrics, one of those contexts is not just injury, but also development. That's how we would have you think about it.
1: One other part of the discussion that was in here was the combining elements and, or based on the number of failure rates that someone has for that part. And then also, a certain number of attempts for repetitions was lower than the majority who failed, and that being a concern. You know, an example of that is if we were to take this data and say, I'm not sure what my tests are when evaluating for concussion, using saccades as an example, like you discussed earlier that some who fail aren't okay. If it took lower than ten reps to provoke symptoms with saccades that that would be a potentially stronger indicator of pathology falling ahead. You, any further comments on that one?
0: Yeah, so I do think that from that standpoint, the idea is that I think most of us are now pretty comfortable with the fact that we're not going to have a single rapid strep test for concussion. <laughs> that there's not going to be one thing that's going to be the magic test that will answer all of our problems in making the diagnosis or treating, and that it's going to be, you know, multiple tests combined to try and boost their ability to distinguish kids with concussion and not concussion. And then in terms of the approach to management, like you described, it's going to be a multimodal active management and not just passive waiting and seeing, and not just a single pill or a single approach. And so I think that the idea behind this is that obviously the more elements that you quote-unquote fail, the more likely then we will consider that you may have a concussion. This study sort of is the sort of mirror of that indicating that even if you don't have a concussion, you may fail one to two, and that's okay. It's not, you know, again, I probably we shouldn't use the term fail because it's just a, a, a spectrum, and you're on one end of the spectrum versus the other, and so you may not be able to perform these tests in the same way that other kids may, and that actually may not be abnormal, and so taking that into consideration when you're in the setting of an injury, the more abnormal or not typical, you know, assessments you have, the more likely we'd be concerned that you might have concussion. And we actually do have another manuscript under review right now that looks at essentially that aspect of combining these scores to try and see if it can help us in terms of making that diagnosis and distinguishing those really mild concussions from those who don't.
1: I like the where you kind of mentioned about the failure thing and not necessarily calling them failures. I I have that same dilemma, and I'm sure you do, where patients will come in and they've had neurocognitive testing done. And there's, oh, I failed my I failed my baseline or I failed yes. you know my neurocognitive test. I, I try and steer them away from that terminology because I think that I mean it's a very negative terminology, right? You failed something, but in the big picture things, that's really not a good descriptor of it either. You can't fail a baseline. You may have an invalid baseline, exactly. which is the way I describe it to exactly. patients. Or, you know, when you may not have performed back to your baseline level, that's not a failure. It just means your body's still recovering. And I, I think it's important when we kind of word those things. So I, I like the fact that you kind of bring that up as you probably shouldn't be calling these failures exactly. on this test. but
0: I know. And it was really more, I mean, we that's a term that we used in terms of the research and the task. It's not really reflective of life. And we really have to come up with a better term. I think you're 100% correct on that.
1: Finally, we're going to finish up with Dr. Master's recently published study in the Journal of Pediatrics on the characteristics of concussion in elementary school-age children implications for clinical management. So, Tina, I'll let you take us through this one as what you did and what you found.
0: Yeah, sure. No, thank you so much. I think that this is basically another one of the articles in the collaboration that we had with our colleagues at the CDC where our real goal was to um, investigate kids from all walks of medicine, that it wasn't just sports concussion and just kids seen in the sports setting, medical setting, but that we wanted to look at kids that were presenting to care in primary care, ER, sports medicine, you know, across the clinical spectrum and try and see what we could learn about this because, you know, we know that kids don't just sustain concussions in sports, they sustain them in life and you know, we don't ask kids to retire from life, so we have to figure out a way to address those issues. The other thing that I think that was interesting about this study was that it, the retrospective cohort design used our electronic health record. So we use EPIC across our network, and that for good or for ill has been something that has been helpful to us in terms of approaching both the research and the clinical management of concussion and that we can really standardize it across our network, across specialties too. So the way that we approach concussion is very similar you know, in the ER, in primary care, even in places like adolescent medicine as well as sports medicine and neurology. So there's a little bit of a, a unity there, which is nice from having that electronic health record that's in common across the network. And then I think we were particularly interested in the elementary school age children because they get a little less attention. Lots is known about college and high school, but a lot less is known about elementary school age children. I think also with concussion being on the milder end of the spectrum of mild traumatic brain injury even, that sometimes it can get a little bit neglected or ignored. And I think what we're realizing is that, you know, it's not necessarily going to be a devastating injury, but it is something that is worth paying attention to because there is a lot of support that we can provide for kids at this age and then also anticipate guidance in terms of trying to prevent you know, secondary or future injury or prevent having issues with any kind of persistent or prolonged issues. We just wanted to see you know, what these school-aged children looked like when they came to us. We essentially queried our medical record for the number of kids this age who were seen with a concussion across the network at any site over that year. And in particular, obviously, because we're interested in the visiovestibular issues that kids have, we also took a look at how that was being assessed across the network. A Couple of interesting things that came out of this was that our, our network does pretty well actually in assessing visiovestibular deficits and concussion. Part of that relates to the fact that we did active training of all of our clinicians who might come into contact with concussion. So our pediatricians, our ER doctors, residents, adolescent medicine, they all get training in doing an assessment. From that standpoint, that is helpful. Obviously, there are more kids who had it done in specialty care, particularly sports, compared to those in the emergency department. Part of our challenge is the emergency department, as you can imagine, are folks who are rotating from elsewhere and outside of our network as residents or trainees. And then just that there's a lot of them, and and they're also very busy. From that standpoint, they may not implement a visual vestibular exam quite as much as we do in sports medicine. So it was a little bit lower, only 42 0.9% of the kids had a vestibular exam at that point. In terms of those who were assessed, we were really interested, you know, do the elementary school kids have these deficits, like the high school and college kids have been demonstrated to have them. We were interested in also kind of dividing up this age range because we were cognizant of the fact that even though you lump school age kids into 5 to 11, there's a lot of development going on there. We wanted to see were the younger kids different from the older kids, and by and large, actually, there weren't huge differences, although from that standpoint, the older kids did have more visio-vestibular deficits than the younger ones on the assessment when we looked at them. That was of interest to us because of the implications for school, obviously. And then from that standpoint, these elementary school-aged kids were similar to high school and college age kids in that they often did describe symptoms that are commonly captured on standardized concussion questionnaires that, again, reinforce that those symptom scales that have been validated in this age range can be useful. And so that's important. We had a paper that just came out with our CDC colleagues on the zero to four age range and concussion, where we found that there are symptoms that aren't really captured, you know, on these questionnaires. And so again, developmental issues that need to be taken into account when assessing kids with concussion, depending on where they are in the developmental spectrum. So I think from that standpoint, you know, our main take-home message, I think, from this was really that If kids this age do report having visio-vestibular symptoms, are assessed and are found to have visio-vestibular deficits, that actually that should come into play and be a consideration in their management that basically having supportive care is important, but also having that active management of sending a letter to school, making sure that they realize that accommodations for academics, which involves a lot of uh, highly visually oriented oculomotor and eye tracking visual tasks may be required. And then what was interesting was that not all of our kids this age got accommodations for school. And so I think uh, there's been so much attention paid to not returning to sport, not sustaining an injury and making those accommodations so that there are restrictions for sports and return to play for sports, but a little bit less attention to return to learn. And we found that less than half of our kids actually got standardized recommendations for school accommodations. From that standpoint, again, trying to raise the awareness that there can be a huge impact that the pediatrician clinician can have in that acute phase in terms of taking care of a kid and supporting them through that acute phase. That really makes a big difference that if they think of it in their history taking and in their physical examination can influence their practice and their management of these concussions. And More and more, what we're finding is that that early active management probably does make a difference in terms of helping them get better quicker, potentially maybe not going on to having persistent symptoms, as some of the studies have shown, both out of Pittsburgh and then our group also looked at boys and girls. If you presented earlier to specialty care, there seemed to be a quicker recovery. And from that standpoint, you wonder, well, why would that be? And it probably is really more just that whole active approach, like you described, that many pediatricians or ERs or urgent care. You know what they're used to doing probably is just giving supportive care in that very, very early acute phase, but then beyond that, maybe aren't transitioning into that active management mode that we have really moved in towards, and that appears to make a difference again, I think from the standpoint of this article, we really wanted to highlight that concussions obviously happen in this age range. they definitely have visio vestibular deficits, we should be assessing them. And when we find them, we should be providing some active management for them along those lines. That was, the, uh, I think, the upshot.
1: I think this article is, uh, for to put perspective for our listeners, I mean, this is just a testimony to the great work that you guys are doing in Philadelphia with your primary care providers there. I, I can guarantee you if any other institution tried to replicate this study and get the numbers of primary care providers doing the visio-vestibular assessments it would fall far short of what you guys are doing. So I think that's certainly a testimony there of how well you guys are getting this into your system there. I think the other part of this, too, that I think people don't realize is when the data from this study was was taken. This is from 2014 to 2015 data. So if we put it in perspective yes, of some of the things yes. that you guys had done, I mean – This is stuff that five years ago we're talking now, and you had 70%, I think it was, in your study of people who were doing the visio-vestibular assessment in primary care and ER settings. That's phenomenal. And same thing for return to learn. I know know you put stuff about return to learn in there, and that less than half were doing that. I mean, again, putting that in perspective time-wise, the AAP's return to learn statement came out in 2013, so we're talking a year or two after that. So having 50%, you know, giving some sort of notes for accommodations, I think is still pretty decent overall when we look at this. So, I, you know, again, I think this is a great study, a testimony of this, like I said, the, this work you guys are doing there at CHOP, you and Matt Grady and others, as far as how well you're you're educating the primary care providers to manage this problem in in their offices.
0: Yeah, they've been great partners, I have to say. And so I think from that perspective, I still do see primary care patients in my practice while I'm doing sports, and I just can't quite let go of that just yet. And they have been really, really open to working with us on this issue, and they have really recognized that they are a really important entry point for kids with concussion and so have really stepped up to that. We've been really, really grateful for the partnership with the care network that we've had uh, really over the last decade. Um, as you can imagine, you know, a lot of this work started back when our state passed the first Pennsylvania state law regarding return to play, and we really jumped in there trying to get everybody up to speed along those lines because everyone was going to be seeing more concussions as a result in the office. I'm sure you had a similar experience out where you are, but this has been something that we've been working on for a decade or more now, so it's it's crazy how time flies, but yes, we're working hard at it and trying.
1: You know, one point I wanted to bring up earlier that I forgot, but I think it's still relevant here because you mentioned the comment about the the time of being able to do the visiovestibular vestibular assessment in the ER. What do you find if you're going to do a complete visiovestibular vestibular evaluation, the time it typically takes to do that on a patient?
0: Once you get really facile at it, we've gotten it timed. You know, We've actually timed it and found that physicians can do it in as short as two and a half minutes. Obviously, what we usually will say is that this is something that you can do in four to five minutes pretty comfortably once you've gotten a little bit of training and get a little bit of practice under your belt. Again, I think that if you look at the time that's spent by physicians in assessing patients and there's more and more pressure on everybody, not just ER doctors, but everyone, we end up looking at it as a cost benefit. Like if you're going to spend the time, is it going to give you useful information that is actionable? And I think over the years, what we've really found is that this is a really worthwhile use of time. That basically gives you really useful information about, you know, what is affecting the kids and then how you can help, you know, support them. Kids have trouble, you know, with smooth pursuits. You know, they're going to have trouble tracking, you know, moving objects in a sport, whatever sport they play, especially if it's a ball oriented sport. You know, if they have trouble with saccades, whether it's horizontal or vertical, you know, horizontal saccades are difficult, can give you difficulty, you know, with reading. Vertical saccades will give you trouble if you can't do them if you're trying to take notes and looking up and down from you know a smart board to your notebook or a, a monitor to your keyboard. And then with the gaze stability, kids who have trouble with the horizontal gaze stability often don't tolerate things like riding in the car because they're having to manage all that horizontal movement uh, around them. And then kids who don't tolerate the vertical gaze stability often have trouble running. They'll say, I started to run and I I didn't feel really great. Those kids, you know, the example that we would target would be if you have trouble with vertical gaze stability, if you're going to do some light exercise, maybe don't start on the treadmill, maybe start on the stationary bike because you have less vertical gaze stability that you're going to have to maintain. You might tolerate it and you'll get the benefit of the exercise without really provoking the vestibular system until that recovers a little bit more. And so trying to think about how you invest your time in the exam and what it can tell you in terms of them helping you better manage that patient, what we would say is that this is a really good five minutes invested.
1: Excellent points. Fantastic discussion today as we wrap up another episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast and our research review with Dr. Tina Master. Thanks so much to Tina for joining us today. Please check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite streaming site for podcasts and please leave us feedback and tell your colleagues about our podcast so we can get the word out. Thanks for joining us today. I'm looking forward to bringing you another episode of our podcast real soon. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.